0: found Job chapter 1. Now there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. He was a wealthy man, wealthiest man in all the East, had ten children. And verse 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. See, Satan's not omnipresent. You know, that flat tire you had yesterday probably is not the work of Satan. He can't cover that much territory. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. In other words, Job serves you because you've blessed him. Take those blessings away. He's not going to have anything to do with you. Accusing him of being self-centered and not God-centered. Verse 11, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And in a day, Job lost everything that he had. And he arose after receiving all this bad news, including the loss of his children. You know, when someone dies, it's not really sad for them because they go on to their reward. But it's sad for us that are left behind. When we weep at funerals, it's for us. Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. I mean, he was in extreme mourning. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't know Satan was at work. He didn't know about the conversation in heaven. He didn't know any of that. So he held God accountable for all that was happening in his life. And he said, I'm going to worship him anyway. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He honored the Lord. In all this, verse 22, Job did not sin nor charge God. With wrong chapter two, verse one, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So God is bragging on Job. Now, if Job knew this was going on, he would say, God, stop bragging on me so much. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd or a piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. So not only did he lose his health, now he's lost the respect the closest person to him. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, that's the little guy, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. Now, I'm sure the greatest man in the east had more than three friends, but these are three that showed up. When they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head towards heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. And after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. So begins the story of Job, a wealthy, righteous man who had and lost it all, including his own children, his health, and the respect of his wife. To make matters worse, three well-meaning friends come to see this suffering man. When they first see Job, they could not recognize him, so they tore their robes and wept and poured ashes on their head. After being speechless for seven days, just staring at him, these friends finally begin to speak and try to make sense of all of Job's problems with wise-sounding accusations of blame. I mean, obviously, this is bad. Let's find out the cause, right? In an effort to pin some sort of guilt on the poor guy, looking for the cause, they increase his hopelessness with the the pain of betrayal, slander, and cruel religion. Can we say cruel religion? Picking up where we left off last week in Job 14, the next chapter continues with Eliphaz the Timonite's second attack on this poor man in an effort to force him to confess to his evil. Job obviously had searched his heart. I don't know if you've ever had a boil. I've had them. They're very painful. My family was missionaries in West Africa, and we were allowed to swim in the lagoon, and it wasn't long till we were getting boils. And Man, they are no fun. But imagine being covered with them. You know he's searching his heart. Those, so these friends are like morons saying, dude, wake up. You've got sin in your life. This is the only reason this could happen. They're trying to make sense out of it. And so after Job defends himself in chapter 14, chapter 15, Eliphaz the Temanite says, verse 9, What do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that's not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. So a couple of these guys, or at least one of these guys, was older than Job's father. And so this shook up even... People that have seen a lot in their life. What this guy was going through was hard to understand. Verse 14, you know, he's going to paint the picture of you're a man, so you, you are evil, basically. Verse 14, he says, what is man that he could be pure? And he is born of a woman that he can be righteous. If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less a man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. Now keep in mind Eliphaz is a guy that was visited by an evil spirit and he repeated to Job what he said in his first discourse. And basically is a demonic picture of heaven that if demons can't even make it in heaven then people who are more inferior than demons can't make it here on the earth which is a much worse place. So he again is spouting off this demonic stuff. Verse 20, the wicked man rise in pain all his days and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. Job was indeed very prosperous. And a destroyer had come upon him. So in Eliphaz's mind, based on his thinking, there's some evil in Job's life. If we can just root it out, then Job can be blessed again. Job defends himself by pointing out the faults of his accusers. In chapter 16, verse 2, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters you are. Verse 5. I also could speak as you do if your life was in my life's place. If your soul was in my soul's place. I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. These guys are making matters worse. Job continues and launches into more painful anguish and lamenting in chapter 17, verse 1. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Satan disappears from the story, but I imagine he's probably behind the scenes giving these guys ideas to bring Job down, to increase his level of hopelessness. Because since Satan can't destroy Job completely by killing him, maybe Job will kill himself if enough friends pile up on him and take his hopes away. Verse 10, Job says, Please come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. You're all a bunch of dummies. Verse 14. He laments, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and sister, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? I don't know if you've ever had someone accuse you of sin, but it hurts. Years ago, someone I cared about asked for a meeting with me and one of the elders of the church and told me I was going to be out of here unless I repented. And he knew why, and I knew why, so he wasn't going to tell me why. That hurt. That hurt thank the Lord a witness was there. Later, the person apologized. But because we're not perfect, words like that can get into our heart and we focus on our past faults and think maybe we've left something out and a general cloud of condemnation covers us. Let me tell you, if it's the Holy Spirit, he makes very clear what the issue is. And generally, it's one thing he points to, and he won't stop pointing at it until you get it right. If your whole life sucks, there's something demonic going on. Not empathizing with a hopeless person, Bildad the Shuhite attacks for the second time. Chapter 18, verse 3. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Now he's accusing him of being prideful. Verse 4. Or shall the rock be removed from its place? The light of the wicked indeed goes out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp beside him is put out. The steps of his strength are shortened, and his own counsel casts him down. Verse 8, still talking about the wicked, which he's implying Job is wicked. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. The net takes him by the heel, and a snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him on the ground and a trap for him in the road. Terrors frighten him on every side and drive him to his feet. His strength is starved and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. Now keep in mind, the book of Job is poetry. And these guys are waxing eloquent in the Hebrew language. And so English doesn't do it justice. But the point is, they're mocking him. You're wicked. Look at your skin. Look at your complexion. Not wanting to take it anymore, Job still continues to respond by casting the pearls of his pain before these swine called his friends. Chapter 19, verse 2. How long, Job says, will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have reproached me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me. Verse 14. My relatives have failed. My close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. Verse 17, my breath is offensive to my wife and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me and those whom I love have turned against me. He's singing the blues, isn't he? I'm having a bad day. Suddenly, while in the midst of this lamenting, this position of honesty brutal honesty as it were with his feelings job suddenly gets a revelation from god if you ever read the psalms you see this kind of thing going on why did the wicked prosper and then by the end of the psalm then i went to the house of the lord and i remembered i'm going to live forever and they're not suddenly in that place of lamenting not just whining but being honest with your hurt and your pain and your anger God meets us at the point of our honesty. Cruel religion will make you fake it till you make it. Real religion makes you faith it till you make it. There's a whole lot of difference between faith in it and faking it. I don't have a cold. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're spreading germs everywhere. You got a cold. Admit it. If you don't have a cold, then you don't need a healer. Right? So Job admits he has a cold. He's got some serious problems. And suddenly God brings revelation to his heart. Chapter 19, verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. They were. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pin and lead forever. And here comes a revelation. For I know that my Redeemer lives And he shall stand at last on the earth and after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another how my heart yearns within me. You see, hope has dawned in his heart. He doesn't know how his redemption is going to come. But He knows that He knows that He knows. His Redeemer lives. You and I may not know how provision is going to come, but we can rest in the fact the provider lives. You may not know how healing is going to come, but you can rest in the fact the healer is eternal. He lives. Keep your trust in Him. How my heart yearns within me. That sounds like hope to me. While this awesome understanding could have become like a sword in Job's hand with which to fight off his discouragement and the words of his discouragers, Zophar, the name of thought, begins to counter his revelation with more accusations. You know, the enemy's not very creative. His greatest strength is relentlessness. If something brought you down in the past, he's going to use that same thing and make you think, oh, it didn't work. It did work, and it'll work again, and it'll work again, and it'll work again. If you mow your grass and next week it needs to be mowed, do you think, oh, it didn't work? <laughs> you discipline your child and he acts up the, an hour later. Oh, it didn't work. No, it worked for an hour. It worked. But you know it 's fine for me to participate on what job needs to know he 's in the midst of the pain i 'm not, and so so far, the Neathite begins to bring him down chapter twenty verse four. Do you not know this of old since man was placed on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. He is mocking the fact that Job realizes his redeemer lives? the triumphing of the wicked is short. The joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. He's calling Job a piece of crap. And those who have seen him will say, where is he? Verse 29, this is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. Job bounces back with some con- contradicting facts for his effusers. But even though what he's about to say is true, it distracts him from the fact his Redeemer lives. If our enemy is relentless, we too must be relentless. Pick up that, that same sword, Job. Say I don't care what you guys say. My Redeemer lives. And in my flesh, I shall see God, for he shall stand on the earth. Uh, No, he decided these guys need to be taken down a few notches. Chapter 21, verse 2. Listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your consolation, says Job. Bear with me that I may speak, and after I have spoken, keep mocking. Verse 7, why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull breeds without failure. Their cow calves without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. In other words, they're accusing Job of wickedness because of the suffering and then he points to the reality there's plenty of wicked people in the world that aren't suffering. Hello, morons? Have you looked around at the real world, beyond your own paradigm, your own sphere of philosophy? There's a lot of wicked people in the world that seem to be doing well. And when they die, sometimes they just die suddenly. So these guys don't have all the answers. Would you agree? Job concludes this truthful encounter with this rebuke to his friends. 2134. How then can you comfort me with empty words, since falsehood remains in your answers? Touché. He'd have been a good lawyer. Eliphaz, the ghost whisperer, that is the man who repeats what evil spirits say to him, replies, relentlessly accusing Job while ignoring the point he just made. Chapter 22, verse 3. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to Him that you make your ways blameless? Is it because of your fear of Him that He corrects you? Or oh, is it because you're a righteous guy that this Tough stuff's happening and into judgment with you. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? Eliphaz turns from accusing Job of committing wicked sins and launches into what Job may not have done that he should have done. In other words, after failing to convict the man of sins of commission, he now moves on to charging Job with sins of omission. Chapter 22, verse 5. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? For you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have not given the weary one water to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. These things are not true. But the mighty man possessed the land, and the honorable man dwelt in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden fear troubles you. He then gets religious and points Job to God, who can help Job with all his troubles if he will just repent and return to the Lord. Verse 23 of Job 22. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove, remove iniquity far from your just get right Job verse 27 you will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows you will also declare a thing and it will be established for you so light will shine on your ways now I've picked on the promise box on the breakfast table because it doesn't always show the full context but Job twenty-two twenty-eight 28 is not a good promise to claim. Because it's spoken by a man who is mocking a righteous man. So if your favorite tape has this guy preaching, you will declare a thing and it will be established for you so your light shall shine on your ways. Keep in mind the context. This is shared to mock a guy. If you'll just get right, everything you want will happen to you. There's plenty of other promises to hold your life onto for faith. Appearing to be stronger, Job now replies honestly and courageously. Chapter 23, verse 8. Look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. You know, I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what's going on. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold, which is true. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Continuing his defense, Job says a whole lot about the wicked and the havoc they seem to bring unhindered everywhere. But God, who seems to be unpredictable, eventually deals with them all. In the book's shortest discourse, chapter 25, Bildad agrees with Job, but then he starts to focus on the wickedness of man while making innuendos against Job with words like maggot and worm. Chapter 25 is the shortest chapter because Job stops him short. Chapter 26, Opens with these words. But Job answered and said. No other chapter does Job answer with the word but preceding it. Job suddenly just launches into it. You know, you're not going to call me a maggot and a worm. Uh, Keep in mind, he's battling those kind of things going on in his body. Chapter 26, verse 2. He asked Bildad, how have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words? And whose spirit came from you? Now he's mocking them. Yeah, Eliphaz, who was that evil spirit from? Job's getting spunky, isn't he? But his eyes are off the fact his Redeemer lives. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Amen. Chapter 27, verse 4. My lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I should say you guys are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? Job then delivers a long discourse on the eventual and undesirable rewards of the wicked and the importance and cause of wisdom. But then he falls back into lamenting again and seems to forget the promise that the Redeemer lives. Chapter 30, verse 27. My heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning, but not in the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. Both are unclean animals. My skin grows black and falls from me. My bones burn with fever. My harp has turned to mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. My guitar is playing the blues. Tired of all his suffering and his tormenting comforters, Job loses it and delivers a speech 40 verses long on how righteous he is in heart, in word, and in deed, as well as by stating numerous punishments that would be his if he weren't. If I was wicked, my arms would fall off, basically. If I was wicked, somebody else would take my wife from me. When Job finally ends his self-justifying words, Chapter 32 opens with these words. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. I don't know if they said, see, there it is, pride. I don't know. But keep in mind, they had pushed the guy. You know, I'm going to turn the other cheek, but man, after the third or fourth time, I'm not sure what I'll do. So don't test it, right? little humor there, very little. Verse 2. Then the wrath of Elihu. Ooh, a fourth guy's popping up. Going to give his two cents. The son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Job basically built a case and proved it logically that he was good. But he forgot to say, even though I don't understand it, God is good. Remember at the beginning of his trials, the Lord gives, the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm going to honor God anyway. It's important, so important. In the midst of any trial or any difficulty where you do not know what's going on, that you honor God. That doesn't mean you can't tell him you're angry with him. You know, God, what have you done? Why are you allowing this? I don't understand. You you can vent to God. But worship Him anyway, because He is worthy. Good things are going to come out of everything that goes on in our life. With the trio of so-called comforters finally silenced by Job's discourse, a fourth party decides to jump up and give his opinion. But that is for another time. Today, I'd like to speak to you for a few minutes on how to help the hopeless. Can we say how to? to Last Sunday, we spoke on how to not help the hopeless, how not to help the hopeless. And if you don't want to help the hopeless, then forget to pray for them. Tell them you'll pray for them, but just don't. Avoid them like the plague. Oh, here she is again. Listen to them unsympathetically, you know, wait for your turn to talk. Feel like you must have all the answers. Share what you saw on a bumper sticker. You know, God is your co-pilot. Christians aren't perfect. We're just forgiven. Tell them how things could be much worse. You know, your dog could have got ran over. Sorry about your cat. Focus on the things they could have prevented. You know, there's a time for everything. You know, a lot of people, a lot of times we do have problems in our life that are caused by us. Lack of wisdom creates an abundance of prayer requests. It's just true. But not everything. When I mean, we live in a fallen world, rain falls on the just and the unjust in the world, you will have tribulation. Jesus said it. Put that in your promise box. Keep your hands clean and your brow free of sweat. If you don't want to help the hopeless, be sure and don't get involved in their mess. Be sure to make promises you probably will never keep. This will increase the level of hopelessness in their life. Y'all know I'm joking, right? Continue to develop your dodging ability and escaping skills. And do your best to make them take the blame for their trouble. And recommend someone else to help them out of their trouble. Watch this. I mean, you you, you go to church, right? hmm I yeah, mean, I do. Yeah. So, what what are your thoughts on on God and church and heaven and stuff? All great questions. Just uh, it's it needs to be answered. Pretty deep question for out on the lawn this morning. I do have a lot of thoughts on that particular issue. Sam, you rang? Pastor Mike, what took you so long? He was just asking me kind of what I believe. Ah, gotcha. I'll take it from here. Thanks. See you guys. Okay. <laughs> Well, first of all, Sam believes the Bible's the inspired, infallible word of God. Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross as a, a propitiation. I'm sure your dad's going to start coming to the games. You know? Once the divorce is funny, how things get better. Pastor. Can I can I get a minute? Ah, uh, not really. I'm I'm babysitting. I've got some groceries to deliver and Bill. I'm That's great. For look. Hey, Jack over here needs somebody to show him the love of Christ. Dad's a real jerk. You know, you got the counseling background. We got tickets to a game. We are late. Maybe just a round to catch to show him. Hey, somebody cares. Yeah. Well, See you Sunday. It's okay. It's okay. Hey, buddy. Yeah, I'm feeling okay, but the place is falling apart. I just don't know what to do. Every last dollar goes to the doctor. What can be done? Uh, well, I don't, I don't know. That that sounds really sad. Somebody need a minister? Oh, pastor. Great. Um, She can't take care of her house. There's got to be something someone can do for her, right? You mean help her out? Uh, meet her needs? That's a great idea. Why did I think of that? <laughs> don't know. I I just did preach a 16-week series on showing love in practical ways. Oh, yeah. Hey, great series. Good luck, huh? (laughs) Actually, I was just helping an older woman walk across the street. I left her in the median. Hi. Remember who asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? How to help the hopeless. How to help the hopeless. Number one, determine where hope starts. Last week I wore the t-shirt. Taylor will have some available here in a couple Sundays. It says hope starts here. We live in a world that is hopeless. Listen to this. This is our world. Every 14 minutes, every 14.2 minutes, someone in the United States dies by suicide. Nearly one million people make a suicide attempt every year. So it's far less than every 14 minutes someone's trying to end their life. Recent data puts yearly medical costs for suicide at nearly $100 million a year. Men are four times more likely to die by suicide than women, but the suicidal rates are rising among women. Suicide rates are highest for people between the ages of 40 and 59, and white folks are more likely to die by suicide than any other race in America. In second place is Native Americans. Hopelessness is on the rise in our culture. In July, 38 servicemen Active servicemen in a military, 38 of them in July, there's only 31 days in July, 38 of them ended their life by suicide. That's more than one a day. We're losing more soldiers to suicide than we are to the two wars that we've been a part of. It was the seventh leading cause of death in 2006 for males and the 16th leading cause of death for Females. Suicide was the third leading cause of death in 2006 for young people aged 15 to 24. In 2008, it was observed that U.S. suicide rates, particularly among middle-aged white women, had increased, although the causes are unclear. The government needs to do something, right? Let's put these people on more drugs and more programs and more complex and more bureaucracy. Past presidents said, ask not what my country can do for me, but ask what I can do for my country. You want to serve your country. Find someone hopeless and bring hope to them. Encourage them. Get a strong grasp of our hope. You can't give a watch away unless you have a watch to give. And if you're wrestling with hopelessness, and you try to encourage someone wrestling with hopelessness, they're going to make you more hopeless. You may wind up agreeing with them, and it'll be more than they can take. So get a hold of our hope. If while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, how much more now that you're his child does that death provide blessings for us? The story's not over. You're still here. You're still standing. And in the midst of some battles, all you have to do is just stand. And you're surrounded by people that love you. reach out and get a hold of some hope for yourself so that you have something to give to others. Don't succumb to pride. Think you don't need encouragement. We all need it. Strengthen order on the home front. You know, is your spouse hopeless? Start at home. Start at home. And stay in agreement because if there's hopeless stuff all over the world. and It can be overwhelming. Stay in agreement. Don't do like a friend of mine who found a hopeless, homeless woman and brought her home without talking to his wife. And she lived with him for months. Needless to say, it wasn't good for the marriage. Strengthen order on the home front. Number four, realize this is an urgent matter for our nation. This is not a somebody needs to do something about this. This is we must do something. I must do something. Am I my brother's keeper? Pray about the mission God has for your family. Well, I want my children to have everything I didn't have. Yeah, you raise up spoiled brats. They don't have to have everything we didn't have. I mean, I didn't have an airplane growing up. Do I have to give my kids an airplane? I mean, think of the logic of that. But as a teen helping homeless people or someone hopeless, you're modeling something for them that will make them healthier, happier adults who when they grow up, they won't go straight in the neck deep into debt because they want to have all the stuff. God has a mission for your family. Why are you a family? It's for more than just the white picket friends and the two dogs. It's for the world's benefit. See interruptions as possible opportunities to help someone. If you're like me, an interruption can make me angry. And if I'm angry, I'll miss an opportunity. Sure, it's inconvenient. But we all get 86,400 seconds a day. And one day we're going to stand before our maker and he's going to say, I was hungry and you fed me or you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink or you didn't give me drink. He's not going to say, I was in prison and you didn't visit me because you were too busy, so that's okay. No. He holds us accountable with what we do with our life and our time. And he personally takes the way we treat others as though we're treating him. And so we must make room in our lives so that when interruptions happen, we can at least do something. When you see or hear of an opportunity, we're calling them opportunities to help someone, at least pray. Not, Lord, you don't want me to do anything, do you? No, Lord, (laughs) help that situation. Is there something you would have me to do? and then without delay begin obeying the prompting the lord gives if it's reasonable that the lord would want you to do such and such for so and so then what's the hold up go for it make room in your heart and mind then with your time and life first we must have a willing mind some of us may be right there we're just not willing We like to blame certain parties for all the problems of the world. But let's look at the church. Judgment begins at the house of God. What are we doing about the problems that are in the world? Share your testimony without belittling anyone's problems. Oh, you had a heart attack. Let me show you my scars. That's nothing, boy. That doesn't help someone. Everybody's pain is relative to their experience. So imagine yourself as not having had any pain and suddenly you're hit with the pain that they've had. It's big to them. Make room in your heart and mind, then with your time in life. Work and develop your empathizing ability and compassion skills. Compassion's just not one of my gifts. Oh, so you're off the hook, huh? It should be, compassion's not one of my gifts, man. The word compassion means sorrow for the misfortune of another accompanied by a strong desire to relieve the pain. It's more than sympathy. It's more than patting the head, but it's it's a desire to do something about the pain of others. God help us. Begin to think outside all the lines of your normal routines. Think outside all the lines of your normal routines. You know what a routine is? It's a rut. You know what a rut is? It's a grave with both ends kicked out. You're dead and don't know it. Opportunities for joy is beyond expressing until you taste it in helping somebody. Next Sunday is What If Sunday. We're wanting to spark a creativity in the body like we've never sparked it before. To begin to think Outside the lines, in the realm of what if. You ever had what if-itis or if only-itis? What if I had done this or what if I had done that? What if I had invested in that or what if I hadn't done that? On your deathbed, you're not going to say, what if I hadn't helped so many people? No, you're going to say, man, it's about to be over. What if I had helped more people? Think about it. Let your imagination go wild. The comic people did this in the 70s. They took, they took the little plots. You know, what if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four? And it went on for years. What if Superman wasn't allergic to kryptonite? I'm not sure if that was one of the titles. I wasn't allowed to have comics during those days. But, you know, what if Batman didn't have a secret identity? I mean, it is silly, but let's bring it to the real world. The question, what if? Is it open-ended to help open up our thinking? I was listening to NPR the other day to a BBC broadcast called Heart and Soul. It's a weekly program on, I think, Saturday evenings from England of this minister who interviews people. And they were in a documentary commemorating the 50th anniversary of the cross and the switchblade and talked about the impact that book had. It was the best 26 minutes I'd heard on radio in a long time. It was very well done. Just go to BBC and you can look up uh, Heart and Soul. You can find it or go to my Facebook page and you can see the link that I have directly to this program. The end of that documentary, they said these words. What if David Wilkerson had not followed his calling. If You remember the story he read in a newspaper about gangs? He's like living somewhere like in Alabama or somewhere, pastoring a little church, and he read about gangs in New York, and he was moved to go up there to see what could be done. What if he hadn't done that? Hundreds of thousands of lives, this guy said, would have been much poorer and very often cut short. What if your mama never smiled at your daddy the day they met? What if you never apologized to your girlfriend? may not be your wife today. What if Kevin and Barbara Smith never opened their home to prayer in 1990? And what if the little group didn't say, hey, let's start meeting on Sundays in January of 91. We wouldn't be here. What if? What if Roger Tidwell hadn't gotten the idea of getting together the leaders of all the food pantries in town and got in touch with the Tarrant Area Food Bank and came up the idea Of a flagship experiment called a mobile food pantry. Hundreds of people wouldn't receive free groceries at the same time. On the third Saturday of every month. What if? Think about it. Let's pray. Father. We want to do something to help people. And I know Lord. It always starts first in our mind and in our hearts. I pray, Lord, you'd open us up to thinking of possibilities of how you could use us. Not using someone else, but using us. Help us, Lord. Good morning and welcome to Generations Church. My name is Christina, and I want to tell you about an exciting event coming up. Let me ask you a question. What if all of us left the past behind? What if we began moving forward on the same day? What if each of us looked for some new opportunities to serve? What if all of us came to worship in the Word on the same Lord's Day morning? What if each of us brought a guest on that Sunday? Well, on Sunday, August 26, we are hosting What If Sunday. This event is for everyone who calls Generations Church home, and this Sunday is going to change our church forever. So get ready to see our congregation's potential as we move together as a family and discover the potential of What If Sunday. And that's just one of the many great things happening at Generations Church. Everyone loves a good conclusion. Songs don't seem right unless they end on that central chord to the key. I hate those movies that leave you hanging. But this sermon, I want to leave you hanging. I want a giant question mark in the heart of every member here. What if we did what we could? What if we were willing to do what we'd never done before? What if... I pulled off the road to see what I could do to help the next person I see stranded. What if I had conversations with my children about what we could do differently to help people? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And may your mind explode with possibilities of the awesome things that He's going to do. And may you look back on today as a turning point in your life where you began to live inside out like never before. Lord, deliver us all from hopelessness where we need encouragement. Help us to receive it so that we can give it away. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go get them, Tigers. You are listening to Worship and the Word with Generations Church of Granbury.